We're back and we've got a full house again. We have, haven't we? <laughs> and, and I love the school holidays. And welcome to more kids. Kids in the studio. Business. It's going to be a lot of fun. And in fact, I think my book might uh, actually um, sort of interest some kids because I have a riddle. A riddle? A riddle. Kids like riddles. But here's a riddle for you, Jan. When is a boy not a boy? Oh, think about that and we'll tell you at the end. Well, some would argue that men are just overgrown boys anyway. But this riddle begins David Astle's latest work, Riddledom. So, David, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jane. Now, if you look at the opening of of David's book, he talks about um, when he was growing up. Growing up, I adored the duplicity of English, how a blind carpenter, carpenter picked up his hammer and saw. How MTGG, here's one you'll like, MTGG, Jan, was a hungry horse. MTGG. MTGG. Or the tastiest dog was a melancholy. Sure, the puns are punishing now, but back in the day, late primary school, this here joke junkie was a gog in a stream of homophones and double meanings. (laughs) I stand accused. (laughs) But how do you explain your fascination for riddles? I I think the fact that um, they are sneaky. And that they aren't what they seem. That always appealed to me, that mm. idea of uh, subterfuge. Uh, also, too, there is something about riddles and kids. I suppose riddles um, give lend power to the teller of the riddle, and that's very important to a child. Suddenly they can hold court at the table, um, and they are the keepers of uh, privileged, privileged knowledge. Well, we have the answer, just like we're holding power over Jan at the moment. She's still working on that, that oh, first riddle. Boy, not a boy. It was a very yeah. big hint, actually, in David's introduction, but anyway. <laughs> but um, does the English language, then, lend itself more than other languages to the telling of riddles? I would have thought uh, a year ago, yes, you're quite right, but uh, probably being neck deep in riddles for the last uh, 12 months, I've come to realise that riddles are ubiquitous uh, and they are polylingual. And it seems as though every language has its own sneakery, has its own um, way of doing things just as much as riddles are very different from culture to culture. But, I mean, English, uh, because of the homophones, puns, because it's a combination and blend of so many languages, does it have more versatility than other cultures, uh, other languages? I think, look, that could be argued. It is certainly a, it is a real um, miscellany and a very flexible one at that. However, um, it is amazing to think that um, there are some languages with a uh, reduced vocab but those words have, therefore, much more meaning. So it might be, uh, say, in Turkish, uh, which has a relatively small corpus of words, has a lot more kind of triple loading on those words. So, you know, there's a lot more potential for um, for that kind of um, sneaky, you know, um, that um, chicanery. chicanery. So mm-hmm. each culture, then, has that in common, that chicanery in common, then? Well, it has. Look, I thought that riddles were basically the stuff of, you know, bike sheds and classrooms and and Christmas crackers. Mm. That was, you know, that was the sort of uh, the prejudice that I had, you know, walking into this book. And what's been lovely is having that prejudice basically bashed around my head and proven wrong every corner I've looked. Because... Uh, riddles really go way back in time. How far can you go back? Uh, well, the oldest I found was actually 5300 BC. So we're talking about, you know, six, that's seven millennia ago. 
Uh, you just you just can't remember it at the moment. Well, that's right. It was actually it's a what fairly. Was it wasn't particularly a funny riddle, uh, <laughs> but that's it. Riddles aren't always funny. Riddles are sometimes about um, they're about power. They're about um, uh, initiation. And in this riddle, which came from the um, on the banks of the Euphrates, they mm-hmm. found this old clay tablet uh, with cuneiform writing on it. And they had presumed it to be some holy text, as you do when you see this sort of Rosetta Stone-like um, script. But they found out that it was a, a school, you know, a classroom primer, and the, uh, the learner, the student, was actually using riddles as their means of uh, improving their, I don't know if we can say penmanship, because they weren't pens, maybe read, read, readmanship. readmanship. Or uh, chiseling out the answer on, on a clay tablet. Yeah, so, and, and the riddle was something along the lines of uh, what is open yet is closed. And uh, for a long time they thought this referred to a deaf person um, because it was a similar character uh, as head uh, and therefore they thought someone who is has a, a, a sort of obstacle to hearing, so therefore they seem open but they can't hear. But then a, um, a scholar by the name of Finkel uh, from the British Museum, has uh, made a very strong argument that the answer actually is a reluctant learner, which is even more beautiful because mm-hmm. it's about... Uh, that really, for me, encapsulates the idea of riddles because you do need to be so agile-minded to, to play the game. And it encapsulates a lot of the students I've taught over the years <laughs> as well. But, I mean, you, you've actually got two chapters on uh, Sophocles and Oedipus Rex. Yeah. And the Sphinx, because Oedipus uh, actually has to solve the riddle of the Sphinx. Well, again, I thought, what um, what riddles have to be in this book? And obviously, the chicken crossing the road was, uh, you know, I, I would have lost my um, my union ticket had I, you know, excluded the chook. Uh, and there were other riddles that seemed to be timeless and were always, you know, in my right on the my radar, you know, from elephant riddles to to what's red and black, mm. white, and red all over. Well, but then I thought, well. When it comes to famous riddles, uh, then the Oedipus riddle is probably the most famous because uh, this is the one that encapsulates, uh, to use a word twice, uh, a very famous you know, myth um, where the this exile of, uh, of Corinth, Oedipus, uh, comes across the, uh, the she-monster in the Sphinx and asks a riddle that um, is essentially the um, the underpinning of his of his life and of his fate. Mm. That that actual riddle, what goes on four feet in the morning, two feet at noon, and three feet in the evening. But it then leads to this notion because Oedipus solves the riddle. He does. Um, but this leads into the riddle of his life. Yeah, he solves the riddle, but he does not absolve himself, and that's what's so fascinating because the answer is man. Um, because he crawls when he's born, uh, then he walks as a biped, and then he uh, relies on a cane uh, in his twilight years in the evening. However, the answer could also be argued as being the man that is me, because when he walks into uh, Thebes, being welcomed as the saviour of that city, having rid the city of the monster... He then becomes the king of Thebes. He marries his mother, which is the kind of fate uh, that was decreed by the the Delphic Oracle. He then carries the scepter of his murdered father. He had done the killing. So he he almost fulfills the answer by solving the riddle. Uh, And it's an answer that he does not wish to solve. So solving it, thinking that he's a success, has actually um, condemned him uh, to his own fate. 
and he also almost brings about then the destruction of the city he's taken over. Yeah, so uh, it's a it's and it's also there's so many. Uh, I mean, we have the Oedipus uh, complex. It, it is a most fertile, dare I say, uh, riddle and myth, um, and has so much you know more things to savour about it. But then in literature. Riddles are used all the time. You've mentioned Lewis Carroll, uh, When is a Raven Like a Writing Desk, uh, Turandot Opera, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Riddling Shrift, I think, is the line from Hamlet, isn't it? Um, yes, that's right. And J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter. Tolkien, of course. We've got Bilbo and Gollum. So it's it's a, a, a wonderful uh, watershed of, of and fertile ground for literature. Well, what do riddles represent? But it, it, but uh, what they hold is a, a potential for um, to to fate to flip on its head, because as much as they hold power, they also hold chaos. Um, they are amazing pivot points for literature. If you can reverse the fate of your characters, uh, if you can divert the uh, direction of a narrative then that's a very uh, intoxicating uh, tool for, for writers to play with, whether it's about a battle of wits or whether it's about um, even small talk, the fact that it's, uh, it's, it's assessing whether you belong to a certain coterie or not. Uh, also, too, there are neck riddles, which are you know what exists in Turandot, where you need to solve this, otherwise you will lose your head. So there's this, um, you know, high drama that is also packed into the riddle. Mm. I mean, uh, Shakespeare uses that in Merchant of Venice, where the, the riddle of the three boxes that has to be solved. But also riddles, the ones I love, are the Anglo-Saxon riddles <laughs> and the Exeter book. Now, children, block your ears, because I'm going to about to read something which is not actually what it is. Well, um, hang on. Now, this is what's so beautiful about it. You're right, David. This The, the riddle you're about to hear, listeners... Can be construed two ways. So, but it, that's your problem in, as, yeah, as a listener right. <laughs> because you're thinking something which isn't actually there. A young man made for the corner where he knew she was standing. This strapping youth had come some way. With his own hands, he whipped up her dress, and under her girdle, he thrust something stiff as she stood there, worked his will. They both shook. This fellow quickened. One moment he was forceful, a first-rate servant, so strenuous that the next he was knocked up, quite blown by his exertion. Beneath the girdle, a thing began to grow that upstanding men love heartily and buy with money. Ooh. Now, Jan, <laughs> I can see I can see what you're thinking. I can see what you're thinking. But it is not what it is seems to be the double entendre. David, would you like to explain? Well, this is a, a, the, the handiwork of a monk, uh, which is even more, you know, uh, uh, shameful. However, it is not as it seems. Um, it, it reminds me, in fact, of the uh, old lady who takes a dictionary back um, to, the, uh, to the library saying this is full of dirty words and the librarian saying, well, what dirty words are they? Uh, in other words, she knew where to look. Uh, and in this case, the answer is a, uh, a young uh, dairyman churning, oh. churning milk. Um, she being a churn, his, uh, his stiff member being a pole, uh, the plying, the creating of cream, the creating of... Uh, the lifting of the girdle, you just take the lid off, etc. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and, and look, they have, made, they have made vulgar things and ribald things of such household items, the monks in the Exeter Book of Riddles from the 1100s, that it's uh, a real um, joy to see how much even clergy could play around with uh, this idea of something being obscene on the surface, uh, but utterly seemly once the answer is revealed. Well, yes, so it's it's you, the listener, who's imposing that um, 
inappropriate meaning. It's not what was necessarily intended. But this is this is the lovely thing about Anglo-Saxon riddles. They often describe things, and I've seen this done in writing workshops, where can you describe something without actually saying what it is? So... Um, who is the great one that glides o'er the earth and swallows both waters and woods? The wind he fears, but waits no wise and seeks to harm the sun. A right guess now this riddle, Heidrich. So what is that glides over the earth and swallows water and woods, but fears the wind? What do you think? Anybody in the studio? <laughs> They're all oh. looking askance, etc. But the, this way of describing something, but it's not actually what it is that's the other beauty of riddles is that they are vehicles of metaphor and in fact the um, you know you could you could argue that they were the original um, conceivers and you know propagators of metaphor because it's all about using figurative language to camouflage as much as to amplify uh, the object that you're beholding mm -hmm. uh, and what you just described uh, is in fact fog um, oh. Spoiler alert, because uh, it does. It draws on water. It it, it covers woods, uh, but it's uh, fear. You know, a fear of wind, uh, which can you know bully it uh, off the landscape. But it's a way of improving your writing by looking at something indirectly rather than directly. But getting onto that notion of riddle as metaphor, then um, it's almost like a code. And you've got examples like Galileo mm. um, sort of communicating because Galileo was locked away. The church didn't like what he was talking about with the planets and such like. So how did he end up communicating? Well, he used code and he used riddle because what they both do, both means of expression, um, they exclude the answer. And yet they also uh, describe and um, they mark out the answer. And this is very important because Galileo, there was no such thing as copyright. So when he found something like uh, the rings of Saturn or he found a, a, a second moon uh, fixed in, in uh, Mars's uh, uh, gravity, he, he could not declare that outright because it might be seized upon by a rival uh, astronomer. Well, his, not only that, his life was in danger because the church didn't want him... Um, were very true. Going to excommunicate. So he it. used anagrams and he used riddles to um, both disguise and also uh, exclaim uh, to, to the cognoscenti what he had found. Uh, so riddles were also like a early um, early means of uh, protecting intellectual property, uh, which you know he's in fact Galileo's journals are as much a, a joy for code breakers as they are for uh, for you know historical researchers. And you've also got non-riddles. <laughs> well, in fact, if you try and work out what something is, sometimes it's very useful to work out what it isn't. Um, because riddle in, it, itself is quite hard to define. What is it exactly, a riddle? You know, how is it different from a tricky question? Uh, and you know, generally the answer is, well, a riddle is a, um, it, it is a kind of uh, elusive language for a pre uh, a kind of preloaded answer. The idea that there is an answer ready to be sprung forth is important. But an anti-riddle is playing around with all the uh, the mores and, and the, the genre itself by sometimes asking a riddle that or a question that seems tricky but in fact is very plain. So, Jan, here's another one for you. If two is company and three's a crowd, what is four and five? Just before six. <laughs> Almost. Four and five is nine. Oh, gee. <laughs> so, my favourite Andy Riddle, David, is uh, what's uh, red and smells like blue paint? That's That would be red paint. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway. <laughs> David, we are actually going to have to end it there. We could keep going with all the riddles. The bottom of the, the every page has a riddle. What can be swallowed as well as swallow you? Pride. Um, but at, at, this is at the bottom. You've got to turn the page to find the answers. This is actually a real page turner of a book. <laughs> it's, it's called Riddledom. Uh, David Astle is the author, and it's an Alan and Unwin publication. Jan. Yes, but what's the difference between a boy and a boy? Oh, yeah, you, well, end, of the, end of the show, Jan. Oh. Or we, we might have to wait till next week. But you've got your guest to, to interview. I do. Ha- so I've got Peggy Frew here, and welcome to 3CR and published or not, Peggy. One of the sights we don't often see on the streets of Melbourne anymore are Hare Krishnas. You know, Hare Krishna. Remember I, I saw some the other day, actually, but that was a surprise. Yes. Right. You don't see them. Well, um, back in the 80s, there were a lot of them, and that's when your book is set. The book's called Hope Farm. Tell us, what what is Hope Farm? Hope Farm is a sort of hippie, failed hippie commune in somewhere in Gippsland on the outskirts of a small town. It's an old farmhouse and another building built out of mud brick that was established sometime we don't really know when probably in the 70s early 70s and functioned for some time as a commune with a group of people living there and sharing and um raising animals and crops and they don't even have goats anymore do they that's right it's a pretty dilapidated it's fallen on hard times it's not self-sufficient all the hippies have to go out to work because (laughs) (laughs) they can't grow enough to to live off it and it's at 1985 and ishta a woman and her 13 year old daughter silver come where have they come from ishtar and silver um have been living in and around Brisbane ever since Silver was born. So uh, they have lived a very shiftless life, um, moving from share house to ashram to commune. So um, when Silver comes here, she hopes that there's going to be other kids. But there's a Jindy who's kind of like a snotty little kid who just wants to be her shadow and a baby that we never even hear its name it's just always crying so it, it this whole uh, share uh, share farm hope farm it's it hasn't got too much friendliness or love or caring going no i suppose this kind of um follows on quite well from talking about david's book because it's really there's not much hope at hope there's a little <laughs> oh. bit of a, a um what's the right word that Despair. <laughs> yeah, it should really be called hopeless fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what about Ishta and Silva? How do they see each other? Well, Silva's had a very unstable life um, and she doesn't really know anything about her own story. She doesn't know why her mother is the only relative that she has Um that she knows of. She doesn't know anything about who her father was because her mother hasn't told her anything. Um, she's very attached to her mother because for that for that reason, because she's the only, that's the only person that she has in her life and because they've moved around so much, um, Ishtar is the only constant in her life. But she has a quite uh, ambivalent attachment. She also sees that her mother is very beautiful mm-hmm. and there's this comment from page 35 from Okay, um, I'll just put my glasses on, excuse me. Uh, so I'll just read a paragraph where um, Silva and this whole book is um, 
in the story of the adult Silver looking back on herself as a 13-year-old. So this is her thinking about her mother. I had always known there was something special about her, registered it in the way other adults reacted to her. I had never given this any thought. It was just the way things were. And besides, I understood. I'd always wanted her too, or more of her anyway. Perhaps every young child wants more of their mother, finds her the most beautiful woman in the world. Perhaps this is normal. I wouldn't know. Mm. Now, she, now she sees her mother in love. And it's a relationship where she doesn't hold all the power or the mother doesn't hold all the power. Who's Ishtar in love with? So Ishtar has fallen for a man called Miller. Um, <clears throat> and he's the reason that they moved to Hope. He has decided that he's going to uh, breathe new life into this commune and get it working again and fill the paddocks up with goats and get the vegetable gardens going and live a life off the grid and be self-sufficient. Um, and he is the first man. There's been a lot of men in Ishtar's life and a lot of relationships that Silver's been able to observe, but uh, Miller is the first one where he's really, uh, where Silver has really seen her mother transformed in a different way. She's not just in love with him. As he said, he, he holds the power. She's, Ishtar's always had a lot of um, power with, in her relationships and mm. she's a very attractive woman. She knows what she can get and she's always got what she wanted and for the first time Silver sees that the tables might have turned in this relationship. And what about Miller and uh, Silver? What's their relationship like? Well, Miller's not interested in Silver. That's fairly obvious. Uh, and why doesn't she like him? Well, she hates him. She really hates him. And I think it's because she, she, all of her feelings of instability and frustration, and, you know, she's 13 and she's mm. beginning to really question Ishtar, who's the only adult in her life who's always been there. And, but she can't hate her mother because that's all she's got. So all of that hate is sort of transposed and moved across. Yeah. There's complexities at Hope Farm Miller. when Miller returns one trip with his wife. That's right. So Miller, <laughs> yeah, we, perhaps yes, that we should have given a spoiler alert for that. But Miller, um, he's... This is a quote from the book okay. and this is in Silver's voice. If he'd seen me at all, as at all significant, any kind of threat, then he might have put some effort into winning me over, but he didn't. He ignored me, and that might have been his biggest mistake. <laughs> Look, it's winter. You said it's winter somewhere country Victoria. But what you have done in this book is describe some of the beauty of the countryside, and that's what uh, Silver really does appreciate, doesn't she? Yeah, and it's it's something that she doesn't realise she's going to find when she gets there, when she gets there, or she's, she feels the yeah. cold. I mean, she's from Brisbane and she comes to the mm. depths of winter in rural Victoria, which is... Very, very cold. And it's the creek that all always mm. draws her. Who does she meet at the creek? So she finds, she when she sort of gets to know the area, but she wanders around, there's a whole sort of tract of bushland next to the property um, that Hope Farm's on and there's a, a creek that runs through it, which she develops this whole relationship with that the bush and the creek. And um, she's down there one time and she, she's been getting a feeling that there's another person around, but she's never quite 
she thinks she can hear someone and or perhaps see them in the distance, but she's not quite sure. And there, are, there's wildlife, there's wallabies and things. So she, she's not sure about it. But then um, one day she's down there and she does. She meets uh, Ian, who's a boy a little bit older than her, who it turns out goes to the same school as her. When she does start going to school in the in one of the nearby towns, and Ian's always watching. He's been watching Hope Farm. He knows that all the potatoes that Miller's planted are going to be useless. They're going to not, mm, you know, because he's planting, planting them, them at the wrong, at the wrong time. time. You, yeah. And he also sort of, if it's not his eyes, he's looking through. It's the eyes of a, f- a camera, and That's so right. we we sort of see his focus everywhere. They develop a friendship, they go to the same school, but there's something about the school and this is what Ian tells Silva. Oh, well, it's it's a rough school, you know. Mm. It's it's um it's a high school in a country town in nineteen in the mid nineteen eighties and um and Silva is there's there's no way that she could fit in anywhere. I mean she, she much as she would love to, she she's has always been different. She's you know her clothes the way yeah. she looks uh and ian is also a, an outsider and so that's that's their bond but ian says to silver he, he sort of has these rules that he lives by he's a very um he's got his code of honor and his way of living and um he says to silver we we can't talk at school their their, their friendship has to be a secret because they, don't acknowledge me. Don't that's you know, right. just don't look at me. I can deal with school, and he has. He's learnt a way, and this is a fabulous part of the book about oh, it's scary, horrible actually. Mm-hmm. Part of the book about bullying at school mm-hmm. and how this young boy Ian has has three three rules mm-hmm. to uh, uh, strategies for bullying: avoidance, resilience, and revenge. And they all come to a head in one of this tiny, um, uh, one of the smaller climaxes in the book where the school bus comes to a stop, all the bullies, and Ian is pulled off the bus, but um, Silver decides to join them. And the only reason that they're actually saved from being incredibly beaten up is a guy called Dan. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yes, a superhero. Oh, is he? Anyway, oh. How does he fit in? <laughs> <laughs> so Dan um, is another traveller who kind of turns up at Hope Farm. There's, it's a bit of a haven for itinerant mm. characters and he's um he's picking asparagus or loading crates of asparagus um and saving up because he wants to go to new york and play he's a guitarist he wants to go and play in yeah. some bands in the sort of he's, he's very attractive scene of new york he is and silver ha- has a bit of a childish crush on him and perhaps the mother does too <laughs> we'll leave it there so what we have is the summer solstice there's uh, a happening, and in that happening, hippie happening, there's an excess of drugs and alcohol, which lead to a very angry Miller who wants to inflict pain on those who have hurt him. Another quote from the book. It was like a chain of dominoes toppling down, each person hurting the other. <gasps> what can Silver and Ian do? Well, we can't tell that, <laughs> can we? we can. But all the other time through the book there's another story it's in a completely different font of printing and a different writing style another story about a mother and a child yes so um silver as i said earlier silver doesn't know anything about her own um conception and birth and background and family but the reader finds out because we're told Mm. ishtar's backstory in ishtar's voice which is a very different voice from Silver's. 
Okay, you've probably all heard the saying, like father, like son. But does it work the same way as like mother, like daughter? There's many assumptions about motherhood, but a responsibility that came with no instruction, which is another quote from um, Peggy Frew's book. Finally, a question Ishtar gets uh, is, is uh, asked Silva. It's about the only time we hear her voice through the book. What do you want? Oh, I thought, yeah. The whole essence of the story took place back, as we said, back in 1985. But the effects of what happened to all those characters are very well rounded out at the end. How does Silver do that? Well, by the end, so the book opens with Silver at 13 and then it, when it ends, she's a middle-aged woman and, and that is the voice that's been telling us the whole story is her looking back over her life. So we ca- by the time we get to the end, we are in the present. Um, she can look up Facebook and find right, out what happened can. to all these characters. She can try and find it the Ian town on Google. Bully, mm-hmm. yeah, that Dean Price, the mm-hmm. horror. You know what happened to him, and yeah. just yeah. And so it became a very satisfying end to a book. I was really surprised, Peggy Fru, that you could keep me really entertained in this book with so few characters, and you know, with a thirteen-year-old girl leading leading the voice. But I was, I was captivated. So thank you very much, Peggy. Fru. For <laughs> Hope Farm, it's published by Scribe, and yeah. I had David Astle in talking about Riddledom, which yeah, tell is me, an, tell Alan, me about an unwin- boy, boy, boy. Can't you work it out? <laughs> no. When is a boy not a boy? When he's a man. Oh no, it can't be that simple. <laughs> it is. Riddles oh. are often that simple. When he's a gog as well. When he's <laughs> so basically, um, yes, uh, all sorts of riddles in David's book, and um, yeah, we'll be back. Next week, See. maybe I should tell a riddle so people will have to tune in <laughs> next week. Keep us hanging. Okay. Why Why is a woman like an arrow? Because she's sharp. Ooh, pointed <laughs> comment. Um, but the actual answer I'll give next week. Oh, oh David, a whole week. That's just You've got to tune in. That's <laughs> it. We've got to... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.